Hi, it's episode number 126, and today we're talking about the desire to give our children the very best. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is Danae, and this is episode 126. And today we're wrapping up this month-long conversation around rethinking education. We started by talking about babies and toddlers, and then we talked about children, and now we're going to talk about adolescents and college-age students. While this might seem like a change of pace from the usual early childhood topics that I cover, it's relevant because it's something that we think about as parents. The children of today are involved in a lot of activities. Whether or not parents realize that on some level they are building a resume of sorts for their children. We put our kids into classes and specialized training programs from a young age because we want to give them the very best. And that's what we're talking about today. What does that mean? What is the very best for your child? That's going to look a lot different for every family. Before I introduce you to today's guest, here's a word from our sponsor. The sponsor for today's episode is Molecule. Molecule is a complete reinvention of the air purifier. It was developed by a father and scientist who is desperate for a solution for his son's asthma. Molecule introduces a breakthrough science that's finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. Even if you don't entirely understand the science behind it, know that Molecule is having a meaningful impact on asthma and allergy sufferers. One customer even said that she was able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. Molecule's technology has been effective and verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people. It's already helped allergy and asthma sufferers around the country better cope with their conditions and significantly reduce their symptoms. And they have a special offer for the Simple Families listeners. For $75 off your first order, go to Molecule.com. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. And at checkout, enter the code SIMPLE. Again, that's Molecule, M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com, and the promo code is SIMPLE. You'll get $75 off at checkout. Back to today's episode. The guest for today is Bill Derezowitz. Bill has a long history with the Ivy Leagues. Not only did he attend undergraduate and PhD programs in Ivy League schools, but he also taught at an Ivy League school for many years. He's now a full-time writer, and he's the author of the book, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. In our chat today, Bill and I talk about these kids who have spent their whole lives jumping through hoops on the treadmill, taking classes, taking courses, killing those extracurriculars, all for this end goal of attaining an Ivy League education. He shares his experience in both connecting to and teaching these students including one quote from a Cornell student that really stuck with me that read, I hate all my activities. I hate all my classes. I hated everything I did in high school. I expect to hate my job, and this is just how it's going to be for the rest of my life. I hope you enjoy this conversation today as Bill and I explore a little bit about the disconnection between perceived success and happiness. But I'll be honest, I don't exactly have good answers for you. But I do know that I'm going to keep asking myself this question. If I want the best for my children, what does that look like? I want the best for my children, and what does that mean? I hope you enjoy this episode. You can find the links in the show notes at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 126. Here's the episode. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. 
Thanks for chatting with me today, Bill. I first came across your book, I think it was back in 2014, when my first child was just about to have his first birthday. And it felt a little bit premature to be reading this book about sending kids to the Ivy League. But at the same time, I think this is a conversation that we need to have early because the drive and the push to send our kids to the best schools and to give our kids the best and to do everything and be everything starts from the very beginning. So I'm excited to hear your take on this. And if you could just first start by introducing your book yourself and a little bit about what you do. Sure. I'm a full-time writer now, have been for 10 years. But before that, I was an English professor uh, did my PhD at Columbia, which I mentioned because I was an instructor there for five years. And then I was at Yale as a professor for 10 years. And the book arose out of those experiences very organically. The longer I went on, especially those years at Yale, the more distressed I got at what I was seeing among my students who were great kids. They were certainly very smart. They were incredibly hardworking. But I felt that the process that had gotten them to Yale had turned him to a certain kind of person that was, let's just say, very far from ideal. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about it more. So actually, as I was finishing my time there, kind of coincidentally, I wrote an essay about this called The Disadvantages of an Elite Education, about all the disadvantages, right? Everybody knows what the advantages are, but what are the disadvantages? And I probably would have given it a better title if I thought anybody was going to see it. I didn't really think anybody would. It was published in a small place. But this really amazing, surprising, very moving thing happened literally like the third day after it went up online, which is that it just kind of exploded. You know, it went viral in a way that I completely didn't anticipate. And actually, it wasn't just like a single burst, like a cat video. It was people reading it, you know, ultimately over a million people reading it month after month after month. It kept circulating. It never went away. And very quickly, I started to get emails from the people who were reading it which were exactly these kinds of students. Like they had found the article and they were passing it amongst themselves because it really spoke to their experience of, I'm on this treadmill. I've been jumping through hoops my whole life. What is it adding up to? Why do I feel like I'm living at values that I didn't choose, that I don't agree with, but that I don't know how to get away from? And I, you know, everyone talks about passion, finding your passion. I don't know what my passion is. Everybody talks about finding a sense of purpose. I don't know how, how to go about doing that. So I was reading these long, confessional, very moving emails. I started to be invited to speak at schools. I spoke at a lot of schools over the next few years. This was 2008. A lot of schools over the next few years. It became clear to me really soon that there was a lot more that needed to be said. I needed to address students' questions, especially the big question, which was always, what can I do about this? How can I get myself off of this path that I, that I, that's making me miserable. So in 2014, you know, when you, when you found the book was the year it came out, it's called Excellent Sheep, the Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. So there's that critique, the miseducation, and there's the kind of response, the way to a meaningful life. And that phrase, I should say, came from one of my students in the middle of a seminar session, kind of spontaneously as this moment of self-recognition. She said, are you saying that we're all kind of just like really excellent sheep. And I think that that's perfect because they are excellent. But what that means is that they're really good at being students, not at thinking necessarily, certainly not at thinking for themselves, certainly not at thinking about their own selves. They're excellent at giving the grown-ups what the grown-ups are asking for. That's what I mean when I say they're excellent at being students. But in her word, they're also sheep. They don't know how to self-direct. 
So, the, you know, that's what brought me to the book, you know, in ways that you may want to talk about or not. It kind of, I ultimately realized how much it reflected my own experience because while I was teaching, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s, really this system started in the 70s and 80s. I realized that I had gone through an earlier version of it. It was less intense then because it keeps getting more and more intense all the time. But it's basically been the same system for about 50 years. So what do you see kids, what do you see these hoops that they have to jump through? What do they spend their lives doing to get to this ultimate goal of an elite inst- institution? Oh, that's that's really easy to answer. I mean, the, well, the, the simple answer is everything, right? I mean, starting, if not in kindergarten, then certainly I would say by sixth or seventh grade, by middle school. And again, I should just say, this is not just my observation. At this point, there are several documentaries about this. There are other books about this. Starting in about sixth or seventh grade at the latest, all available time is filled up with resume building or skill building activity. So it means doing your homework. It means teams. It means instruments. Your weekends are busy. Your evenings are busy. Your summers are busy. Everything is geared towards building up the kind of resume, the kind of uh, profile, the kind of academic and extracurricular record that is felt to be necessary and quite frankly is necessary for admission to the most selective schools. Because it's all right. Ultimately, everything is governed by the admissions process at the most elite institutions that everyone in a certain segment of society, let's say, certainly everyone in the upper middle class, many people in the middle class, many other people are aspiring towards. And that's like literally you don't have time to think past the next exam. That's what I mean by hoop jumping. Absolutely. So I'm going to read a quote from your book, which really stuck out to me. And you wrote, such is an image of these enviable youngsters who appear to be the winners of the race that we've made of childhood. But the reality is, as I've witnessed something very different, look beneath the facade of confidence and seemingly well adjustment, and you'll find toxic levels of fear, anxiety, and depression of emptiness, aimlessness, and isolation. And that was very striking to me. And this is something that you felt like you observed throughout most of your tenure at these universities? Well, actually, I'm glad you asked me that. First of all, let me say that there's a lot of, this is not just what I observed, right? There now, as I mentioned, there are other sources of, of this studies, like, you know, studies by psychologists, um, utilization rates at counseling centers at universities, Great books by psychologists. I mean, there is no doubt that there's an epidemic of mental illness, anxiety, depression, suicide, attempted suicide. I mean, this is very well documented. But the reason I'm so glad you asked me that question is that the one piece of this, the one thing I didn't talk about in that initial essay, the one piece of this that I wasn't aware of at all was that piece, right? I knew my students really well. I was the kind of professor who really like to be a mentor, like to kind of have a long, unstructured chats with students in office hours. There aren't a lot of professors who do that anymore. So in a lot of ways, I knew my students better than almost, probably almost any other adult in their lives, uh, quite frankly. And I never knew this. And it's because they're so good at hiding this from us. That, that what you just read, that facade of apparent self-adjustment, sort of happy, healthy, high achievement. I mean, I had students, some of my favorite students who seemed like really well-adjusted. They weren't like grossly competitive. They weren't like running to Wall Street. They're actually young people that I'm still friends with. And it was only after I was no longer a professor, no longer an authority figure, years later, that they told me things like, you know, actually, I was miserable the entire time I was in college. Actually, I had no friends until my senior year. 
that kind of thing. And the reason I'm emphasizing, the reason I'm stressing this is because parents are often really oblivious to this. And they think that if the kids are getting AIDS, everything is okay, right? So it's parents need to become aware of this. It's scary. I think that I've seen this. I live outside of New York City and Westchester County, and I'm observing the school districts here that are so highly competitive and so sought after. I mean, the real estate is, there's such a premium in some of these schools. And it's something that I, I feel like I'm seeking to avoid for my kids. And it's hard to avoid. It's hard to find that balance in getting your kid a good education without putting them into a pressure cooker. And do you have any thoughts on parents like myself that want the best for their kids, but at the same time, want them to be really well-rounded and emotionally healthy individuals? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's really hard and I'm not going to pretend that it isn't. But I think they, you, we really need to look carefully at what you just said, right? Because that's what every parent says. You want the best for them, but you also want them to be healthy, well-rounded individuals. What is the best for them if not being healthy, well-rounded individuals. I mean, I think what parents are saying is they want their kids to have a certain level of, of achievement, of status, of success. When parents say they want their kids to get a good education, I'm going to be skeptical about that, or at least I'm going to ask them to think about what exactly do you mean by that? Because what I, what I see in these kinds of schools, and I've now spoken actually a lot of high schools, I'm going to be speaking at a private school in Westchester next month. Oh, great. Yeah. I'm going to have to get more information about that from you. Yeah. And, I, and, I mean, and I've gone, I mean, around the country, I've now, it's about a dozen and a half high schools. And it's, you know, again, the problems are the same across the board. So parents say they want their kids to develop intellectual curiosity. They say they want them to sort of have a well-rounded education. But when push comes to shove, they don't actually mean it. What they really mean is we want our kids to get into the best college, the quote unquote best college, which means one thing. It means the most highly ranked college. So it's this it's this race for status. It's a status competition. Yeah, I think it's interesting you use the term when push comes to shove, because there's a lot of pushing and shoving that I feel like goes on between the parent and the child that they might not even realize that they're doing. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's it's really hard. The schools are very aware of this. The schools are very aware that they're, you know, as much as they're committed to real education, I think they almost always are. Their business model, their ability to attract customers, and it, it, I mean, it's a, it's a public school district in an affluent community just as much as it is an affluent private school. Their ability to stay in business depends on satisfying the parents' demands for prestige college admissions. And it's like everyone runs around knowing that there's a problem, but nobody can do anything about it and nobody will be able to do anything about it until you have the courage, whether you're a kid, I mean, I I generally talk to college students, or a parent to say, I'm facing a choice. I'm in a system that's forcing me to face a choice between learning and success, between happiness and success. And I have to be very clear that it's always going to be a choice. You're not going to be able to have both. So which one is it going to be? And if you choose fulfillment and happiness and purpose and a meaningful life, know that you're probably going to have to give something up, some quantum of status, maybe some quantum of wealth, but you're going to give something up anyway. And this, that's why I say it's not easy. It's a really, really hard choice. 
And one of the things that, that students have told me that's been also been clear from other things is that even if the parents are trying to send a more balanced message, and even if they really mean it, which is a big if, if your kid is in, if the school is crazy, if all the other parents are crazy, then it doesn't matter if your parents aren't because you're in an environment that's crazy. And it's really hard to, you know, you're a kid, you're 16, you're 14, you're 20 and you're in college. It's really hard to buck that kind of intense social and peer pressure to go in a certain direction. Absolutely. You wrote a quote that also stood out to me. I'm going to read it. It says, we cannot continue to go with the flow, however powerful the current is. If we want our kids to turn out differently, we have to raise them differently. And I think that most of my audience who's listening today, they have young children. And I think that there's still so much opportunity to take them in a different direction and to pull them out of soccer tots and <sighs> four-year-old violin lessons and all the things. And I mean, it starts at birth. You have a baby and you're like, all right, where are the classes? Give me the list. Sign me up. And it's just, and where are the preschool applications? It starts so young this race. And once you're on the treadmill, it's incredibly hard to get off. Yeah. Listen, one of the things I would say is that I think a lot of this is pointless. You know, I'm tempted to say that your listeners, your parents of young children who are already thinking about this, the first thing I would say to them is stop. Stop thinking about it. You don't need to think about this now. I would also say that it depends what family we're, kind of family we're talking about. And I know that there's, a, I don't know what the range is in your listeners, but if we're talking about the kinds of families who end up putting their kids in this pr kind of pressure cooker in affluent environments, whose kids end up going to selective colleges, quite frankly, your kid's going to be fine. If your kid was born into the upper middle class, they're going to be fine. Probably. And if they're not going to be fine, it's going to be because of the mental health problems, not because they're going to end up sleeping under a bridge. Or not because they went to a less than amazing university. That would be less yeah. of their problems. Well, listen, one, I can't give you the exact reference. I can give you the link later and you can put it on your site. But there's a study that everybody, every parent needs to know about. It was actually done twice because the first time the researchers did it with a smaller sample, nobody believed it, right? But what the study, they matched students who had gotten into fancy colleges and gone with ones who had gotten into the same colleges but didn't go, often for financial reasons. When you track, when you double, you know, when you match students like that and track them, track their earnings through their careers, what you find is that there, there's no difference. There's no difference in how much money you make. So while it's true that like the average Dartmouth graduate makes a lot more money than the average Rutgers graduate, that's because Dartmouth happens to attract, for obvious reasons, attract kids who are going to make a lot of money. But the same student going to the two schools, it will make no difference. The point being that what matters is the kid, not the school. That's what matters. So purely in financial terms, your kid literally will do the same no matter where they go. And the rest of it is just status competition. It's just window stickers. So you talk about how when kids come in as 18-year-olds that there is so much diversity, not so much economic diversity, but some economic diversity, a lot of racial diversity, a lot of kids with different interests, and they come in as this mixed group and they all kind of go out as what you call 32 flavors of vanilla. <laughs> can, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. And I think you're referring to something that one of my students wrote. Great comment. She said, however much diversity Yale's freshman classes have, its senior classes have far less. Because precisely because of that peer pressure. I mean, there's, believe it or not, just, just the peer pressure. Like, really, you're majoring in anthropology? What are you going to do with that? We're made, you know, everyone is, everyone else is majoring in economics or computer science. Like, you don't know what you want to do after college? Like, we're all going to go to Wall Street. We're going to go into consulting. 
So there, I mean, it's basically Wall Street consulting, medicine, law, and tech are the big destinations that take up more than half, often well over half of the graduating classes of these institutions. Because, you know, you would think these kids have all the potential and all the opportunities and all the abilities, and that's all true. But instead of scattering and further diversifying into all kinds of vocational niches, they tend to focus as if they're being sent through a funnel into the ones that everyone else is doing. So... I'm not nostalgic for the old days, and I try not to even sound like I am, but it's a worthwhile point of comparison that in the 70s, even in the 80s, certainly in the 60s, if you went to a college campus, you would see people who all looked very different from each other, and mainly because they were all being young adults, and the thing you do when you're a young adult is to experiment yourself, and that can mean, you know, you're a hippie, you're a punk, you're a whatever. I realized at a certain point when I was at Yale that all the kids looked the same, and it didn't matter what race they were, and it didn't even matter what class they came from. They all looked like upper-middle-class professionals in training. They all looked like they were prepared to be interviewed for a job at a moment's notice. They were all converging on the same self. And to raise a kid who's capable of resisting that kind of conformity is hard, but also incredibly valuable. It is. I completely agree with that. Now, myself, I went to Miami University in Ohio, which calls itself a public Ivy, which I think is sort of fascinating. You could you could analyze that all over the place, but sort of branding itself as like the next best thing to an Ivy League school <laughs> <laughs> in yeah. order to draw students in. And I had a very, I would call it a traditional college experience where, you know, I was a part of the Greek system. There was a lot of drinking, a lot of socializing, very traditional public school experience. Amazing experience. I absolutely enjoyed my time and grew so much there. Post-college, after my husband and I got married, we moved for him to do his MBA at Northwestern. So we lived in Evanston for two years. And I would consider Northwestern to be one of these elite schools. And I was fascinated at after living in a college town, my college town in Oxford, Ohio, and then going to this college town in Evanston, Illinois, that I never saw any students that I would go out into the streets, into the restaurants and to the bars. And I just like, where, where are they? Like there's thousands and thousands of students here. And I just never saw them out having fun and living. And I just assumed they probably were all studying and hold up somewhere. And it felt, I felt a little sad for them in that sense. Yeah. I mean, certainly Northwestern very much falls into that category. Uh, studying or running around doing extracurriculars and internships. I mean, that's a big part of it. I, I don't equate studying with, you know, curiosity or intellectualism necessarily, but one of the big trends is that actually students are studying less because again, it's, it's about resume building and credential building, which isn't necessarily the same as building academic competence and certainly not the same as intellectual immersion. So actually, and again, there's a, there's a book about this with very well documented social scientific statistics behind it. Students are studying less and less and less, maybe at a big state university, maybe not Miami of Ohio, but like Ohio State, a lot of that extra time is partying. But at the competitive schools, the schools that attract the hoop jumpers, it's, like I said, it's career-oriented extracurriculars and increasingly career-oriented internships. I bet a lot of those Northwestern kids were working in a lab, extracurricular, or going into Chicago maybe and, and you know doing an internship at a company. But it's as you say, I mean, like the one thing they're not doing is being young adults and doing the developmentally normal things, the developmentally necessary things. And in, in, you know, of young adulthood. And in that sense, it's a continuation of childhood and adolescence. I said there have been other books about this. One of the best 
is called How to Raise an Adult by a former dean of freshmen at Stanford named Julie Lithgott-Hames. And she puts it very succinctly. She said, kids are going to campus with more and more academic skills and fewer and fewer social and psychological skills. And the reason, I mean, those are not two separate ideas. That's the same idea. They're, they have fewer and fewer interpersonal skills, life skills, because they're spending all their time not just studying, but again, instruments, teams, the whole jazz, right? So they're not, we're not letting them have a normal psychological development. So they don't have resiliency. They don't have coping skills. This is why so many of them have to be on medication. So many of them are going to counseling services. Yeah. And there's just this prevailing sense of unhappiness. You quoted one Cornell student as saying, I hate all my activities. I hate all my classes. I hated everything I did in high school. I expect to hate my job. And this is just how it's going to be for the rest of my life. And yeah. that that's a, that's a downer. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's tough to hear from a young person who has their whole life ahead of them that they've just sort of come to this conclusion that life sucks and it's supposed to be that way. It's incredibly sad. That was actually one of the first moments where this really I thought she was pulling my leg. I thought she was making fun of me. And then she assured me and the other people in the room were like, "No, no, no, no. Uh they're jaded already. They're burnt out already." I mean, think about it. They think well, you know, they have every reason to think their life is always going to be like this because it's always been like that. And one of the saddest things for me, I actually say this when I speak to high school students, and it's always an incredibly actually powerful moment when I talk at high schools. I say, one of the saddest things for me is that I will hear students in high school or maybe who just got to college saying, now that I'm in college, everything's going to be different and knowing how wrong they are. Because they don't know any other way. Well, not just that, because as soon as you get to college, a whole new vista of hoops and hurdles and gold stars and goals comes into view. And now all of a sudden you're competing to get into the best medical school or the best investment bank. So I'll say this at a high school and this kind of collective groan will go up because they've been counting on things being different. And to hear that actually this isn't going to end. And the truth is it's never going to end. I mean, I quote William Fitzsimmons, who's been the admissions director at Harvard forever, I think over 30 years. And he says, you know, you'll meet people in their 40s who seem like the survivors of a lifelong boot camp. They're still doing it. So, you know, I mean, I absolutely think that anybody is capable of getting themselves off the treadmill with, I was going to say with enough support, sometimes even without support. But it doesn't mean, so I don't want to, I'm not fatalistic about this. But we need to be really clear that the problem isn't just going to solve itself. It's not going to just disappear by itself. And clear that we as parents have a big role in this and we can do things differently in order to help our kids make decision, make better decisions and let our kids really be who they are and let them figure out who they are. Yes. And I mean, this is now we're getting outside of my expertise because I'm not, I'm not a parenting person and I'm not an early, you know, a childhood person. I know I knew college kids and I, I hear from high school kids. But what I would, I, the main thing I would say about that is like, you really have to mean it. Again, I mean, I mean, there's some parents who are really just crazy, you know, tiger mother and, you know, they don't care if their kid is happy. Most parents will say, you know, I want my kid to be happy but they don't really mean it or they think they mean it, but the kid sees through it. There was a study that came out recently, I think a couple of years ago. They asked high school kids, is it more important to your parents that you be a good person or that you get good grades? And the overwhelming majority said, it's more important to my parents that I get good grades. You know, and there was this great, you know, moral panic, this brief sort of outcry, how, oh my God, how's this? Well, of course, because kids aren't stupid, because 
they're not listening to the messages that come out of your mouth. They're listening to the, you know, the ones that you're actually enact. So I absolutely think you're right that parents have a huge role in doing something about this, but they have to really mean. Well, thank you. I think that's really important for us to keep in mind, especially with, with young children. And I appreciate your time today, Bill. This has been really enlightening. And I hope that you'll send me some of those links to the studies and the books that you're speaking of, because I think those would be really helpful for the audience members who want to dive a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more about this topic. I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, Bill. This was great. And if you could send me any links, because I always have people asking for more information, that would be really helpful. Sure. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about Bill, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 126. And I will have the links for you there. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you are, go to simplefamilies.com and leave your email address. That's the best way to stay in touch with what's going on in the blog, the podcast and in the community. Thanks for tuning in.